electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Jobs report. What jobs report? Today is all about the end of the pandemic, at least according to markets. Pfizer's COVID treatment pill reduced hospitalization and death by 89 percent. Reopening stocks are flying and pandemic trades are getting crushed. Dr. Scott Gottlieb telling Squawk Box he thinks the pandemic could be over in the U.S. by January. We'll walk through all of the trades. Plus one big winner of reopening, Cinemark. But will movie going ever return to pre-pandemic levels? We'll talk to the CEO about the box office and competition from meme darling AMC. And soaring energy prices has shares of natural gas giant EQT soaring 60% this year. But will new rules in Washington rain on its parade? We'll ask CEO Toby Rice. But we begin with today's record-setting markets. Christina Partzinevelis with the numbers. Christina? Well, we're halfway through the day and U.S. equities are continuing their upward trend. The S&P up for its lucky seventh straight day and the Nasdaq on a roll for 10 straight days. We know an upbeat jobs report, like Kelly mentioned, strength in earnings and positive COVID treatment and news. The mood... We're coming out of the woods. So the Dow that you're seeing on your screen above 36,000, the Nasdaq above six, or well, it was above 16,000 for the first time ever, just coming down off of that. The dollar index hitting a fresh high earlier today at 94.62. That's the highest level in more than a year. And on a sector breakdown, we've got energy, communication services, consumer discretionary leading the pack. Healthcare is actually the only sector in the red right now and some weak vaccine-linked names like Johnson & Johnson. As for earnings, we had shares of payment processors square down about 2% just uh, not too long ago on slowing growth with its cash app. And you can see it's still like that on your screen now, 2.5%. And then GoPro exceeded expectations for its most recent quarter. It thinks it can hit its full-year target. The stock is up. 7%. 7%. Just a few names for you, Kelly, on this upbeat day. Back to you. Blast from the past with GoPro there. Christina, thank you so much. I know. I wanted to throw it in. I love it. <laughs> Up 7%. Now, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb declared that COVID could soon be endemic, which is a good thing, after Pfizer's antiviral drug treatment proved extremely effective against hospitalization and death in trials. And when you look at the market today, it definitely seems to be sending a similar message. Huge moves to the upside today in reopening names, while the stay-at-home trades are getting crushed. Let's zero in on four sectors right at the heart of this, and we'll start with entertainment, led by Live Nation hitting an all-time high and Madison Square Garden climbing more than 5%. Here with the story and the trades are CNBC's Bob Bassani, along with CNBC contributors Tim Seymour, the CIO of Seymour Asset Management, and Gina Sanchez, who is CEO of Chantico Global. Great to have you guys all here. Bob, how much of a breakout are we seeing across the entertainment space? Uh, well, it's pretty significant, but these have been rallying. This didn't just happen today. These have been rallying for a while. People are going out more. I'm going out more. I, I saw Steely Dan the other day. Three nights sold out. Stone cold sellout to see Steely Dan. People just on their feet cheering. I went to see Dune at the AMC down the street. Sold out. I went to see One Night in Soho, kind of a popular movie at the moment. 70% sold out. Everywhere I go, I see people going out right now, Kelly. 
I wore my MetroCard high heel earrings. To thank you to the viewer who sent these like five years ago, Gina. This is the day. You know, this is the cool. day for wearing the the get out stuff. How many of these stocks do you think still have room to run, and how many have already priced in the reopening? Well, I think there's actually still quite a lot of room to run. You know, I think the place where you have to question is where the business model is changing. So things like Cinemark and AMC are are questionable. But if you look even between those two, you know, AMC diluted its stock, diluted its shareholders. They have much higher prices. I think if you had to bet, you'd pick Cinemark. But Live Nation is still one that's got a lot of room to run. How much room? Walk us through that, Gina, with people wondering, especially after today's move. Well, you know, Live Nation is obviously showing really strong earnings. Obviously, there's this pent-up demand for any sort of entertainment that doesn't happen on a small screen. And so live entertainment is really kind of where people are going. And so if you look at that, you take that forward, that you know, that that trade right now, you know, this is a company that was losing money hand over fist uh, during uh, during the pandemic. And it is still, I think, priced uh, well enough that you can still have some more room to run in the stock price, because obviously you're starting to see the earnings kind of get behind the, the story and people feel safe enough to go into uh, to go out to concerts, to go out to live events. Steely Dan, uh, the, the Live Nation shares up 15 percent today, Tim, 22 percent in a week. Where would you tell investors to go in the entertainment space? Well, I, I kind of agree with this. And I'm also not surprised to hear Bob you know, hit Steely Dan and, and that, you know, he's got good taste in music. I run into him at a lot of shows around New York City, by the way. Um, and Live Nation is, is, you know, 22, 23 times forward EV EBITDA. Not terribly expensive on a historical basis. The key here is not just that, you know, the reunion tour uh, kicks into high gear next year, especially as uh, I think the global markets open up. But the on-site spending means that the, the margins here and the margins, look, at, at, you know, all of the concessions in these places are enormous. And this is part of where I think some of the re-rating is going, obviously, on a day when we had a payroll number that showed just where wages are that we know and the consumer's ability to spend uh, with higher wages. So, I, I, again, I, I think the sector re-rates uh, and I think Live Nation, not terribly expensive here, even though it's been on a big tear. All right. Let's move along. Talk about the flip side of things today. The stay at home trade is getting hammered. Peloton is obviously the biggest loser, down more than 30 percent. They also just slashed their full year sales forecast last night by a billion dollars amid slowing demand. But still, Zoom. DocuSign and Chewy, all darlings of the stay-at-home boom, are also down big today as well, Zoom by more than 7%. Gina, I'll start with you this time. Would you be picking up any of these names, given the re-rating to the downside we've seen there? So it's interesting. You know, Zoom obviously was just a darling during the, you know, during the pandemic. And so pricing was was working against it. Peloton was just going to be a problem because you see a lot of churn in that space. So I've been calling for that down downturn in a while. But you look at something like Chewy. Chewy, while it was a stay-at-home play, you're still going to feed your pets even after you go back to, to, to work. So I'm not sure that that one actually deserves the pummeling that it's getting. Which is down almost 6% today, Bob. And it's interesting to contrast that with names like Etsy, which were also stay-at-home beneficiaries but continue to do well. Yeah, a, a lot. Of th- this is an old story. Most of the pure play or the stuff that's largely related to stay at home has been sideways for many months. Zoom is near a 52 week low. And but that hasn't just happened. That's been headed in that direction 
uh, for a long time. Other stuff I don't agree with. You know, DocuSign, that's not a stay-at-home play. That's a tech play. My wife's a real estate agent. They've all moved to DocuSign and using that. That's nothing to do with stay-at-home. Mm-hmm. So DocuSign, I think, is, is going to be fine, for example. Uh, DoorDash, DoorDash is going to be fine. People are still going to be ordering uh, out uh, and bringing stuff, uh, having stuff delivered to their homes. So th- there are a few. Peloton and, and Zoom strike me as <clears throat> definitely a bit vulnerable for sure, Peloton, as you saw today, but other stuff that are more technology-oriented are going to be fine. Tim, would you go against the grain at all here and pick up a name like Zoom? I'm, I might go against the grain a little bit here. I, I think if you look at the kind of United Communications as a service and, and where Microsoft seems to be the one that's destroying everybody and that teams are, are, are you know, kind of rolling through. But I, I just think that the enterprise market um, is so strong. I think Zoom has been, yeah, I think, you know, too much. And I do think that the valuation, uh, not where you're getting too excited here. But this isn't just a stay-at-home, stay-at-home story. Uh, and I do think this is a platform that continues to grow. And I do believe there's plenty of enterprise that they are able to compete with Microsoft on, on Peloton. You know, there are problems with that result that we're not just suddenly they're trying to carve out a new demographic. And there's been price cuts that we you know, this wasn't new to that that result. But but when they talk about recalibrating their fiscal outlook, I don't even know what the term recalibrate means in the context <laughs> of an earnings report. It doesn't sound good to me. It's a cycling um, term. And I'm happy to be back at the gym. I'm happy to, if it's not obvious, yeah. I'm happy to be back at the gym. Oh, it's obvious. Uh, Peloton <laughs> is kidding. down Just about kidding. 35% today. So, again, kind of bad timing on the heels of this. And again, these moves are largely punctuating the downward trend we've already been seeing. So, to the market, it's really not today the pandemic is over. It's been going on uh, as a grind for some time now. So, let's talk about that means for the travel stocks soaring. Many just reported better than results for their part, including Lyft and Uber this week, Booking, Expedia, and Airbnb. Here's the space. I mean, Uber's up about 4% today. Lyft up another 8%. Booking up 7%. Expedia 16%. Airbnb 11%. I could go on. The airlines and hotels are also seeing some pretty nice gains with Marriott and Hilton hitting all-time highs and Delta's up 7%. So, Tim, I'll I'll go back to you here. Um, Are these places that you think can continue to run into next year for quite some time? Look, airlines, you have to be careful with airlines because, again, the enterprise values of these companies are significantly bigger in the case of especially United and American. And Delta is the best balance sheet of the bunch. And Delta is where I would go here. And if you look at that Jets ETF as a proxy, um, you're getting back to the 200 day. And, and I do think I think airlines are very interesting here. We've started to hear we heard this from United that the front of the bus is uh, starting to fill up, but that the international travel, uh, they're increasing capacity 10 percent. Uh, very, very bullish for the margins here. And again, I, I just think. Yes, I think the the airlines were overly punished on a combination of really fear about the business model coming back as it was pre-COVID. And while that will be slower, I think that's you know certainly you know a big part of the story. You know, back to Uber. Um, look, I, I know the debate between Uber and Lyft is always uh, the simple, pure rideshare model versus the uh, you know all of the other services that that Uber is going after. And, and frankly, I embrace that. I think this super app mentality at Uber, including also the purchase of Drizzly, but also uh, not just uh, not just uh, food delivery, but also groceries and other uh, non-grocery items makes this very, very attractive as driver and labor share remains tight, but is getting better. Sure. Um, uh, adjusted profitability, something I, I, you know, is 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 a 
head fake for investors. I wouldn't focus on that because I don't think profitability is here right now. All right. So liking Uber, liking the airlines. Gina, what about you? We haven't talked as much about the hotels, some of the room sharing or, or a hotel, the Airbnb names like that. Would you be interested in that space? So I actually kind of embrace, am embracing the the, res, the resumption of business travel. And I feel like I'm a proxy for that. I mean, before the pandemic, I was booking a quarter of a million miles a year. Um, and I have been basically not moving for the last 18, 20 months. And in November, I booked basically... I will be traveling the last half of November into December and January, which for me and and many of my counterparts are doing the same. That's an increase in airlines. That's going to be an increase um, in in hotel bookings, right? This isn't an Airbnb play. This is a hotel play. This is a business play. And I agree with the call on Delta. I think of all of the balance sheets, you do have to be careful where you you look and kind of what the different airlines are 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 kind of positioned for. Delta has the cleanest balance sheet. They've gone through the the the, the most consolidation. Validation, and I think they're they're more positioned for uh, a recovery. You know, United is is really kind of focused on on you know Silicon Valley, and so as goes Silicon Valley, that's probably where United will go. And American Airlines is starting to look and feel a little like a, a discounter, so I'm not really sure how that's going to work out. Um, so I think Delta is the better play of those three plays. You know, in the, in the in the in the hotel space, I just think that the hotels broadly have a lot of room to run right now. Um, as business travel resumes. Yeah, and I mean, to your point about Delta, that's obviously a business travel play. I want you to come to us from an airport next time. (laughs) If you're going to be hitting the road that much, we can get a double. We can get your take. We can also see what's going on behind you. Uh, Bob, I'll just turn to you if you want to put a point on it. If we look across the kind of travel space, uh, we have already seen some pretty big runs in these sectors. Yeah, uh, and I would be a little cautious about getting exuberant about things like international travel. I, I was just talking to travel agents this week about the Caribbean over the holidays. We were looking at that. There is a lot of barriers up to getting into these places still. Mm-hmm. Uh, negative tests going in, negative tests while you're there, negative tests while you're leaving. A lot of people, they're not full in the Caribbean. And a lot of people are just saying, I'm not sure it's worth the hassle. They're still having significant outbreaks in, in parts of the Caribbean, still parts of Europe as well. So it's going on over in Germany. Yeah. So, and I looked at the Expedia numbers. Bookings were down 30% in the third quarter compared to 2019. Uh, hotel room nights down 33% compared to 2019. Those are only very marginal improvements over the second quarter. I agree. We all want to go out. I want to go out. We all want things to improve. But it's still, you know, the numbers are still not that great right now. So it's a just great keep point. an eye on that. And on and, that uh, note, be aware of it. absolutely. And let's hit the restaurants to close things out here because they're kind of stuck in the space you're describing. People <laughs> are heading back to in-person dining. Names like Cheesecake Factory, Bloomin' Brands, Brinker, the owner of Chili, seeing a boost today in the range of 6 to 7%. The biggest winner is Shack. Shake Shack up about 20% and a half right now. I'm squinting. Is that a zero? Is that an eight? It reported a smaller than expected loss. BTIG upgrading the stock to buy, citing a bottom in fundamentals and an increase in foot traffic. But again, I mean, and Bob, we'll start with you on, on this one. The the sort of what do we call it? Casual dining, the sit down restaurants has been a much slower recovery than the names like Chipotle. Maybe now investors hoping Shake Shack can get back into that territory. Well, one thing you can't help but realize when you go into these places is how difficult it is to get help. I was in California. I went to see some friends mm-hmm. there. Of course, I go a lot, a lot in New York. And it's it's shocking how 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 difficult uh, how, the lack of help that's out there right now. 
Uh, and, and that is a big story among people who go out a lot. We went out, we sat there for 20 minutes uh, waiting for a waitress to come over to us. I hear this story all the time, and I think that's a major problem. I think that will resolve itself. I think more people will go out, but that's definitely holding things back. Other than that, I see the desire for people. I, I, I go out to restaurants, and I, I try to book the rooms, book, excuse me, book the tables. I can see they're at 80%, 90% capacity yeah. in places that I used to go to. So the demand is certainly there. I'm, I just think people, people really have got into their heads that there's nobody around to work in these restaurants right now. And that's, that's sort of inhibiting the experience and the willingness well, of people to go out. I was going to say pitch a hand. Speaking of experience, that'll mm-hmm. be part of the experiential dining, I think, to kind of move things along here. Gina and Tim, just give a quick final couple of stock picks, if you would, in the sector. Gina, where would you be in the restaurant space? Uh, well, look, if Tim's hitting the gym, I'm actually contributing to Shake Shack. So <laughs> that's I, um, and I actually think that that that, yes, there definitely are are problems with the space in terms of finding help and the experience. I totally agree with that. But I do think that this is a place it's low lying fruit and it's the easiest form of entertainment. And I think it will continue to to recover. All right, Tim, and your picks. Yeah, Bob's not getting help at his table because he's overusing the waitress's name tag. Uh, look, I think you have a case here where you have Shaq, which is pricing power. You have a dynamic where uh, McDonald's, Chipotle at all time highs. This multiple is not expensive, even though it is expensive. All right, guys, thank you so much. Kind of giving the whole picture of what's playing out in the markets today. Really consequential day, a historic one in some sense. Tim Seymour, Gina Sanchez and Bob Bassani are thanks. We'll see you guys again in just a couple of days here. Up next, we're revisiting that entertainment sector with an exclusive interview with the CEO of Cinemark. The theater chain reporting a wider-than-expected loss after beating on revenues. Attendance in the third quarter jumped 1,500% from a year ago to about 31 million customers. So when should investors expect to return to profitability? Plus, natural gas prices taking a breather after a recent monster move. We'll speak to the CEO of the largest nat gas producer in the country about where prices could go from here. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Cinemark is higher after results this morning as the company reported October was its best month at the box office since March of 2020. The stock is up 135 percent over the past year, but we're still 25 percent off the 52-week high. CEO Mark Zarati saying Cinemark is, quote, confident in the future of movie going as the pandemic subsides. So can movie theater chains keep the momentum going into the holiday season? Joining us now, Julia Borston with an exclusive interview with Mark Zarati, the CEO of Cinemark. Julia? Thanks, Kelly and Mark. Thanks for talking to us on the heels of those better than expected results. Attendance levels, pricing and concession spending all coming in stronger than expected. Can you give us a sense of what you're seeing so far in the fourth quarter and what your expectations are going into 2022? You know, Julia, we're, we're actually in the midst of a very strong fourth quarter. I mean, it, it started in October with the best month we've ever had. And the lineup of films between now and the end of the year is lining up to be extremely strong. Uh, Obviously, the virus is starting to wane down and vaccinations are going up. So therefore, people's confidence in coming back to the theaters is high. So we're seeing very, very good strength in the box office across multiple demographics. You know, Mark, it's interesting because the movie business is emerging from the pandemic very much transformed. We have some studios doing simultaneous releases, many of the studios shortening the window between theatrical and at-home release. And I'm wondering how that changes things for you and how concerned you are that some people are just not going to be going to theaters as often as they did pre-pandemic. You know, we, we haven't, we don't, we don't think that necessarily is going to be the case. Really what's been holding people back was their confidence because of the virus. And so is that wanes and then secondarily content. And the studios are now all lining up with some form of an exclusive window. Typically, it's it's about 45 days. There might be slightly less than that for the if, if you don't have the big blockbuster movie. But the studios have recognized the strength and importance of theatrical to help drive all the ancillaries that follow. So, you know, we've been out talking to all the studio, all the studios and content providers. And basically across the board, we're getting a, we're getting a very a strong commitment towards returning to a theatrical window both in the fourth quarter and as we look forward to 2022. And I think that's probably what's driving our enthusiasm and optimism more than anything else. Yeah, but it's interesting, though, because that window of 45 days, that's half of what the window was before the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you feel like there are things that you have to do to make sure that the theatrical experience really feels distinct from the at-home experience, whether it's investing in high-end concessions or improving the quality of the theaters. What's next on that roadmap for you? Well, you know, that's a really good question. Um, The the window pre-pandemic was really about 74 days. It was a little less than, than 90 um, and, and so now as it, as, it, as it tones itself down to 45, what we're seeing is that we're getting the vast majority of our revenue uh, in during that time. But you ask, what do we need to do? Probably more than anything else is we need to create a great cinematic experience. And so we've been extremely active during the pandemic. We've now got uh, 65% of all of our theaters with those luxury reclined heated seats, which are fantastic. We now have an online ordering service called Snacks and a Tap, where you can order online and we will deliver the concessions directly to your seat. And then we've got our XD, a large screen format, which has just been actually selling out the soonest than any of our other seats because people want to come back and have that real cinematic experience. 
Mark, I have to ask you about your rival AMC, you know, a meme stock. It's been trading on a lot of things that are disconnected from the fundamentals. And now it's out there selling popcorn, doing a lot of things that you're not doing. And I'm wondering how that impacts the competition. Well, you know, I would I would put it this way, Julia. First of all, popcorn has been a staple for us for years and years. We've been selling pack-a-pop popcorn for four years now, which you can come and pick up at Cinemark Theaters. And actually, we've been testing uh, kiosks and malls down in Brazil for quite a while. So the, the popcorn initiative is interesting, and, and certainly we'll continue to look at that. Uh, but I don't think it's really a, necessarily a game changer for, for anyone because popcorn is very important to all of us. Um, I think more important for us is to do what you had said earlier, and that is to create that experience for the consumer to want to come back to the theater. Popcorn and concessions is a part of that, but the movie is really what drives them back in the first place. Well, Mark, everyone loves their movie theater popcorn. Thanks so much for joining (laughs) us, Mark Zarati. Kelly, back over to you. Great stuff. Julia, thank you. And our thanks to Mark as well. Still ahead here on The Exchange, Pfizer on pace for its best day since March 2020 after some very promising data on its COVID antiviral pill. You could argue it's got the whole markets in a tizzy. PFE up more than 6%. And we'll bring you the details on the stock moves next, along with what's happening in Moderna. And with unemployment falling to a new pandemic low of 4.6%, what does it mean for the Fed's next move and for the overall state of the economy? We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's what's happening at this hour. Opening statements are underway at the trial of three men charged with killing Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia last year. Prosecutors say the defendants chased Aubrey for five minutes in their pickup trucks and ultimately shot him after assuming he committed a crime. Prosecutors say they had no evidence Aubrey did anything wrong. On the news tonight, defense attorneys respond and explain why their clients should go free in that case. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. In Iowa, two high school students are facing murder charges following the death of a Spanish teacher at their school. The 16-year-olds have been charged as adults with first-degree homicide and first-degree conspiracy to commit homicide. The remains of 66-year-old Noema Garber were discovered in a park on Wednesday after she went missing earlier that day. On a far happier note, last-minute preparations are being finished for the New York City Marathon. It's returning with a limited field after being canceled last year, of course, due to the pandemic. 33,000 runners will be hitting the pavement on Sunday, but that's down from the 50,000-plus who took part each year before COVID. We wish them the best of luck. It's going to be a little chilly out there. 
Kel, back to and you. And that means it's time to turn the clocks back, right? Yep, exactly. So they gotta, they're falling back and hopefully not falling on the course. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not falling back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sue, thank you so much. We'll see you, Sue Herrera. Pfizer shares are soaring today and its competitors are sinking after they had some encouraging news about their COVID antiviral pill. The company reporting today this oral COVID treatment reduced the risk of hospitalization or death by 89% when given to non-hospitalized high-risk patients within three days of symptoms. CEO Albert Borla telling CNBC this morning they'll file for an emergency use authorization as soon as possible. Pfizer up almost 7%, Moderna down almost 25% today. Meg Terrell is here with all the details. Meg, I don't want to say this came out of nowhere, but it feels a little bit like that. Yeah, you know, Kelly, they've been working on this since the very beginning. Pfizer started work looking for antiviral drugs when this pandemic hit. And of course, we've all been focused on the vaccines and the incredible speed with which they developed those. But this is actually incredibly fast for antiviral drug development as well, even though it's coming about a year after the vaccines. If you look at the timeline, starting in March 2020, they really began that surge. Uh, they sorted through lots of compounds. Uh, and we'll hear from Albert Borla on how they did this in just a sec, but really started Starting that phase one in March of this year, and now we're getting this incredible efficacy result today. Uh, Albert Borla joined us on Squawk Box this morning and talked about the speed with which they did this. Here's what he said. We started the program March 20th, and within four months, I repeat, not four years, four months until July 20th, we have synthesized and in vitro tested 600 molecules of protease inhibitors, 600. And then on July 20th, we've chosen this one. And then in 12 months, we were able to bring uh, uh, the results. So it's, it's amazing in 16 months, actually. It is amazing how fast we were able to do it. And of course, a main question now is, can they ramp up supply? They were doing that at risk as they were developing the drug. They say as of now, they expect to have 180,000 courses of treatment by the end of this year, 50 million next year, and perhaps even more than that, as this result was so much more positive than they expected, they may even ramp that up further. Borla telling us they're in discussions with at least 90 governments around the world right now for supply agreements. Look at this stock reaction. Pfizer up 7% there. Merck, of course, which has its own drug down almost 10%, rejected which makes a monoclonal antibody drug for uh, COVID, also down 6 and Moderna down almost 25% on this as folks are looking at this as perhaps maybe people taking fewer boosters or vaccines in the future. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, and Moderna shares were at almost $350 on Tuesday, and they're at 217 today. So just an incredible turn of events. Now, it would be one thing for us to say, okay, now wait, these are only for high-risk patients. Uh, you know, it's a different category than maybe the entire population. But at the same time, the market is running with this, Meg, as if to kind of quote Scott Gottlieb this morning, the pandemic is over. Well, it really is the last tool that we were looking for on top of the vaccines, the monoclonal antibodies. Um, you know, we have drugs for severe patients in the hospital like dexamethasone, but we didn't have that oral antiviral drug that people can take at home at the first signs of getting COVID. Now, there's the Merck drug as well, but this one has 89% efficacy. Uh, and so it's really another tool that will be incredibly helpful with this pandemic. Will we get to a point where there's an, uh, an oral drug you can take if you're not high risk? So... If you're just, you know, not, maybe not Aaron Rodgers, but you know what I'm saying? If, there, if there's something that the, the ordinary person can take that becomes a real substitute, let's say, for the vaccine. 
Well, I think public health experts would break out in shingles about the idea that it would be a substitute for the vaccine. But in terms of being a treatment for somebody, regardless of whether they're high risk or not, Pfizer's running that trial and we should see the results maybe in the next six months or so. And so we'll see, does this have such a benefit for non-high risk folks as well? One would expect if it you know affects the viral load, it would be pretty helpful. Yeah. And by the way, the shingles vaccine was in short supply this year because of all the rest of this. Just an interesting sight. I know more people now who have had shingles uh, than ever before. Meg, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on all the latest on these developments. Our Meg Terrell. Still ahead, according to the latest jobs data, the great resignation appears to be here to stay. What does it mean for the Fed? We will dive into the jobs numbers next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets losing a little bit of steam here. The Nasdaq has turned negative by seven points. The Dow is 200 points off the session high, still up 128 or a third of 1%. But the S&P is only up nine right now. Let's take a quick look at how the sectors have done this week with some very big moves. Consumer discretionary up 5%. Uh, tech, as you can see here, up about 3%. And healthcare lagging by one and a third percent. Uh, by the way, these are the only sectors up more than 10% in the past month as well. Here are some of the movers this hour. NVIDIA and Qualcomm are both hitting new all-time highs and helping to push the semi-ETF, the SMH, to its own record high. So again, here's the SMH up at 295. I think pre-pandemic, it was down at like 140. So it just continues to chug higher. NVIDIA up half a percent to three. It was over 300 a share a little bit earlier on. Just some monster moves up 20% this week, about a $750 billion market cap. And let's get a check on Avis budget after its own wild week with shares higher after two days of losses. It's rallied 66% this week and 660% this year. Car is up six and a half percent today. It's still down 50 percent from its intraday high of 545 back on Tuesday when the shares famously doubled in a single session. All right. Now, one of the sticking points in the jobs report this morning is the fact that labor force participation remains weak. It failed to expand last month and remains far lower than it was pre-pandemic. How many people have now left the workforce permanently? And what does that mean for the Fed and for the markets? Joining me now is Bill Rogers. He's vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He's also a former chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor. Bill, it's great to see you again. How many of these dropouts are permanent, do you think? Well, we don't know that just yet, right? Because this, is, this comes from the monthly household survey. And uh, people are asked, are they you know, working, if they're working? Uh, how many hours they're working. But in this case, people are asked, you know, are you working? And they're saying, uh, no, I'm not working. And if it's even going a step further, they're saying that I'm, you know, not, I don't want a job. Uh, but, but that could change, right? I mean, we're, we've been studying this group of uh, men and women, 55 to 64 years of age, and about a third of them seem to be have, have a college degree or at least a college degree. So one, po- one possible story that people have been telling, which could be, again, more permanent, is that these are people who have 401ks, who right. got good, good uh, settlements coming out of their out of leaving their firms. Uh, and even though they're retiring early or leaving the labor market early, uh, they have the income that they could 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 make it permanent. Uh, but but I but but I'm still re- reticent to, to to say it's permanent just yet. Well, I, I think the reason why this is so important is let's say we're down four or five million jobs from the pre-pandemic, uh, and three million of those are early retires, for example. You know, we just heard from Chair Powell this week who kept saying they want to make sure that they are supporting the recovery until the labor market uh, fully recovers. Well, I mean, how, are we getting pretty close now, right? Or are we are we waiting for the labor force uh, to re-expand or not? 
Well, the groups that I also I focus on and my staff at the at the uh, Institute for Economic Equity, uh, we're we're monitoring actively monitoring. Uh, those individuals who many people will call vulnerable groups. These are individuals uh, who, during bad times, they're the first people to lose their jobs. During good times, they're the, uh, the, the sometimes the last uh, to, to to benefit. And we're, so, who are some of those groups? It's it's women. It's uh, minorities. It's people with disabilities. It's people with no more than a high school degree. And when you look at their participation rates, we still have a long way to go in terms of being able to provide opportunities. So, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that you know we can solve uh, some of the uh, the issues around supply constraints. Uh, that uh, and, and that we'll continue to see right uh, compensation. Um, efforts to attract and retain employees to to to, to continue, right. um, but also see employers change their mindset because typically in previous expansions like this, you get not only increases in compensation, but you also get employers changing their attitudes or their perceptions or their views about who's employable, sure, such sure. as hiring young young less educated workers or people who have uh, who are. Uh, formerly uh, incarcerated nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, and so that's what we're looking for and trying to see. And once we see more and more of those kind of individuals uh, pulled into the labor market, uh, then I'll start to say, yeah, we're, you know, we're at full employment. Well, or I we're, think the we're reason, really close. It, ordinarily, we would all say, of course, you want to cast, you know, as wide, get that tent as big as possible. Absolutely. No question. Everybody would want that. But to paraphrase what Steve Leisman asked the chair earlier this week, he said, is there a welfare trade-off, an overall consumer welfare trade-off between the swaths of Americans who are paying higher prices, which you could trace back to the Fed, and those who are still waiting to be absorbed into the labor force? You know, it's not, is there a give and take, in other words, in, in waiting for employment to expand to the final possible parts of the population? Is the rest of the population paying much higher prices for food and energy and all the rest of it? Yeah, well, I, my reading of the data is that uh, you know that that thus far, uh, you know, the, the inflationary pressures we've been seeing, you know, are coming from the from the production side, uh, such as the challenges of right the the supply bottlenecks, and 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 as again as the director of the Institute for Economic Equity. Myself and my staff, we are really focused on uh, finding those opportunities for that young, less educated, um, uh, non, 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 non high school graduate, or for that uh, young college graduate, uh, and to to have a to get, and to get a toehold in the economy because there's been a great deal of evidence that has shown cohorts or young, or cohorts or particularly young groups who enter during recessions. It can take up to a decade for them to catch up in terms of their earnings, or or they also sometimes will experience uh, lower lifetime earnings. Yeah. Uh, Lowell Ricketts and Anna Kent and uh, Ray Bashar, three colleagues of mine at our institute that are doing work on issues of wealth, and they've shown dramatic differences uh, by cohort. And so, um, it's a it's a benefit cost analysis. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are costs, but the benefits, in my view, as the director and what we're working on, the benefits of uh, of, uh, of the groups I've talked about getting toeholds into the economy, uh, they're going to be consuming, they're, they'll be producing, they're mm -hmm. going to be productive, they're going to, and hence, going to be adding to economic growth. No, absolutely. Point well taken. Like you said, you're looking at this all the time. Bill, it's great to have you today. Thank you for your time. Kelly, thank you. Bill Rogers of the St. Louis Fed. Up next, investors are slicing up shares of this pizza chain. Despite an earnings beat, the name and why Jim Cramer is staying bullish. Next.
Shares of Papa John's plunging 6% today after surging yesterday in extended trading despite better than expected earnings, revenues, comps, and margins. Jim Cramer is staying bullish on the name, saying in his CNBC Investing Club newsletter, it's outperforming competitors and just generally crushing it. Plus, they're Shaq. To access Jim's highlights and insights, sign up by pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on the screen or go to cnbc.com slash investing club. Still ahead, more than 100 countries have pledged to reduce methane methane emissions by 30 percent over the next eight years. That was at the COP26 summit this week. The CEO of EQT, America's largest natural gas producer, joins me to discuss what that means for the energy industry right after this. One of the biggest announcements so far from the COP26 summit is President Biden's proposal to curb U.S. methane emissions from oil and gas producers. It's part of a global effort to cut emissions by 30 percent by 2030. But could this undermine the energy sector's strong returns? Take a look at the biggest net gas producer in the U.S., EQT. Its shares have soared 60 percent since January. And joining me now is EQT CEO Toby Rice. Toby, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. This is such an important time for natural gas. Let's just start with the price action. Uh, it's kind of remained persistently high, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is, you know, surprise a lot, a lot of people um, to see this type of, of price reaction. Um, you know, we did think that, you know, this type of pricing is going to be sort of inevitable when you, you know, restrict supply. Um, you know, what we've seen in, in other parts of the world, the, the significant underinvestment in traditional energy sources. Um, have sort of coming to a head right now. And as a result, we're seeing these higher prices today and, and in the foreseeable future. I mean, I will say the U.S. has not seen anything like the spikes we've seen in parts of Europe and, and even to some extent China. Um, but how much higher could they go here? You know, we've seen protests at places in New York, uh, people concerned their energy bills are going up 30 percent this winter and things like that. What would you tell them? Well, number one, I'd say that, you know, if we had more access to more pipelines in this country, um, and the United States, uh, U.S. shale industry could help alleviate energy, any energy shortages that we see. So this is a self-inflicted problem that's completely unnecessary. That's number one. Um, number two, you know, U.S. Uh, storage levels here are around the five-year average. So, you know, we should be able to withstand, you know, even a cold winter here in the United States. That is not the case for, for, for countries like Uh, for continents like Europe and and Asia, which they're going to be in a little bit more of a difficult situation. Um, But, you know, as far as the price action, we could see, you know, natural gas prices being 450 in in calendar 21 and and calendar calendar year 22, uh, we're seeing around $3 and sorry, about 450 in calendar 22. You know, this might seem like extreme prices compared to what we've seen in the past where where natural gas was around $2 and a couple of years ago. Um, But just want to remind everybody that natural gas prices have been around $4.50 is the average gas price over the last 20 years. We've been able to have the benefit and luxury of lower energy prices because of American shale uh, domestic production here in the United States. And this is something that if we want to prevent high prices from happening, support the oil and gas industry, support American shale, you know, we, we can be an answer to help keep prices uh, affordable for all Americans. Obviously, we're not at a moment that that's politically popular, you know, broadly speaking. I mean, the president is at this COP26 summit to try to make the point about moving. I think you saw the big announcements on solar. Uh, they're looking to wind and, and other sources of energy. So is there a way to <laughs> make net gas cheaper without uh, supporting it politically? You know what I'm, what I'm trying to say? I mean, it just feels like it's getting sort of and investors aren't helping because there's been so much divestment, granted in part because of poor returns over the past decade. 
yeah, if you if you if you want to prioritize um, your your care for the environment, then you should be supporting natural gas. The emissions that we've dropped in the United States over 800 million tons we've shaved since 2005. That is because of natural gas phasing out coal, replacing that with natural gas. Over 75 percent of that that emissions reduction is attributable to natural gas um, switching from 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 coal to natural gas. The opportunity in front of us is tremendous. You know, as good as you know, wind and solar can have on reducing emissions uh, in the United States. If we can increase our, our natural gas exports, and this is more LNG, and increase 20 BCF a day just to re- re- replace the coal that's being consumed in India and China, um, that would have the impact of reducing 370 million tons of CO2 in the world, wow. which would be larger than the emissions reduction that you're seeing in the total renewable industry here in the United States. So quick final question then, uh, you know, when we look across the opportunities still left with nat gas and they're saying that we need to bring emis- uh, methane emissions down 30 percent, what's that going to mean for production? Well, for, for uh, modern shale producers like EQT, um, it, you know, we drill some pretty high class wells. We've got uh, sophisticated technologies in place, robust uh, monitoring programs, and our methane intensity performance is peer leading, um, not, not just here domestically, but compared to other companies around the world. Our methane intensity levels here is around 0.05%, um, which is well below the EPA's estimate of 0.4%. So it's not going to have that big of an impact for your, your modern shale operators, but there will be an impact to the marginal well producers, you know, wells that produce less than 100 MCF a day. And this is what I hope people understand these impacts when they think about these regulations uh, from a cost perspective. If, if these regulations burden our, our small mom and pop operators, you know, that could have the impact. These marginal wells produce around 8 BCF a day of our of our current gas supply. You remove 8 BCF a day, that's about 10% of gas production. Wow. Prices are going to increase. And it's not just, and that's going to have a tremendous burden on the American consumer. The, the other impact, though, which I'm equally as concerned about, is the impact to the environment. If we remove 8 BCF a day of gas supply out of the world, that is 8 BCF a day of coal consumption that is going to take place. And that 8 BCF a day of coal consumption switching to coal is going to translate to almost 250 million tons incremental CO2 emissions per year. That's the equivalent of over, you know, 50 Tesla, the impact that Tesla makes 50 times over. So I, I think we really need to understand the, the impacts of these regulations, but it's a good start. It, it helps level the playing field. Uh, we embrace, you know, having, having clearer rules of the game that we can operate to. And I think it will ultimately bring more trust back to our industry that we are doing things the right way, bring some transparency to the performance that we're doing. Toby, it's great to have you on today to break all this down for us. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Toby Rice is the CEO and president of EQT. Coming up, the slowdown in Bitcoin trading hit Robinhood and Square's results. What does it mean for Coinbase next week? Stay with us. Welcome back. Square trading lowered today by almost 3% after missing on revenue last night, and Bitcoin is partially to blame. Kate Rooney joins me now with the details and what it could mean for Coinbase earnings next week. Kate? 
Hey, Kelly Square was the latest company to suffer from a crypto slowdown in the third quarter. Bitcoin was a big reason for Square's revenue miss. Analysts were also disappointed by slower growth in Square's cash app. Bitcoin revenue coming in about $800 million, shy of expectations. CFO Amrita Ahuja telling reporters this was due to lower Bitcoin prices and less volatility, therefore people trading less. She did, though, say that she's seen a little bit of improvement in October as Bitcoin prices rebounded to an all-time high. Square's quarter echoes what we saw with Robinhood just a week earlier. Robinhood also missing on earnings or on revenue, with crypto dropping off as a percentage of transaction-based revenue. Robinhood CFO also saying less interest in some of those viral coins like Dogecoin were a big part of the reason for that slowdown. Both companies, Square and Robinhood, though, say that they are not planning to add any new coins to drive growth. Jack Dorsey says he is focused on Bitcoin as the native currency of the Internet, as he called it. On the earnings call, Robinhood executives, though, cited regulatory uncertainty. And Coinbase, the largest U.S. crypto exchange, reporting next week their bread and butter is cryptocurrency trading. If you look at the second quarter, transaction-based revenue made up 95% of total net revenue. But they have been looking to expand and diversify into some other areas of crypto with an NFT marketplace, for example. Kelly. Yes, they have. Kate, thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Kate Rooney, that does it for the exchange today, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.